Welcome to One Life Online, the podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from John chapter 6, verses 38 through 53, titled, The Father's Will, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. John chapter 6, verse 41 to verse 59 is where I am preaching from today. We read, of course, rather Andrew read from verse 35, and I wanted us to get that context which we looked at last Sunday, where Jesus clearly stated two truths that we, we know, two truths that are there prevalent in the scriptures, that, that God is sovereign and he has determined to call a people for himself, and that anyone whom he calls will come to him. Jesus said, all who the Father gives me will come to me, and, and the one who comes to me I will in no way cast out. But then it is not only, the truth does not stop only about God's sovereign call and God's determinative call, but also that we have a responsibility to see and, and to believe and to trust and to put our faith in Jesus once we have heard his word. To use the words of Hebrews chapter 3, today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the provocation in the wilderness. And for that reason, many of them never reached the promised land. Their bodies died and perished in the wilderness. If you hear the voice of God calling you to believe in him, to trust in him, you can only but see and believe. So Jesus told us that, that that is the will of the Father, that anyone who sees the Son and and believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Four times we find that expression, I will raise him up on the last day. Now, when the Jews heard this, they started to complain. The Jews here would be the Jewish religious leaders. They started to grumble and to murmur. This perennial disease that has followed them all the time from their wilderness wanderings is still with them up until this point. This perennial disease of complaining and grumbling is still with us even at present day. People complain a lot and, and grumble a lot, sometimes for good reasons, but most times not for good reasons. So the Jewish leaders in, who are in Capernaum, they reject him, just like the ones who were in Jerusalem rejected him. And they complained. And we wonder, why did they complain? Isn't what Jesus said uh, biblical? Isn't what Jesus said true? Does it not fit with a biblical timeline? Why did they complain? They complained, if you look at the context, not because he called himself the true bread. That was not really the basis of their complaint. They complained not because he identified himself as the bread of life. They kept on listening. They complained because he said, I am the bread which came out of heaven. At that point, they stopped listening and they started murmuring against each other because Jesus said that he came from heaven, that he is the bread which came down from heaven. It was those claims that made them angry with Jesus. And that was not the first time that they were angry with him for making similar claims. 
when we went through John chapter 5 in verse 17 and verse 18, Jesus made similar claims. He said, we read in that verse that the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father. When he said that, they wanted to finish him immediately. And so they are complaining. And this is what they are saying. Is not this Jesus? Is not this the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? Now the place where this discussion is happening is in Capernaum. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. The distance between Capernaum and Nazareth is approximately 32 kilometers. So they have an idea of where this man called Jesus comes from. We know him. We know his family. According to the Jewish leaders, Jesus' identity was another man in Israel whose parents they knew. Not necessarily personally or intimately or relationally, but communally. No wonder Jesus kept a distance from them. Because that is all that they consider him to be and nothing more. Yet all that he's doing is glorifying the Father. So Jesus kept a distance from them. And this is not the first time we read, for example, in John chapter 1, when we are introduced to Jesus, that he came unto his own, in verse 11 we are told, and his own received him not. His very own people, they rejected him. But to as many as believed in him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. We read in John chapter 4 and verse 44 that Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country where he comes from. He's respected everywhere else except the area where he comes from. This fits very well with, with the description of Jesus in Isaiah, with the prophecy concerning Jesus in Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, we are told that he is despised, he is rejected of men, he is a man who is acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, and we hid as it were our faces from him, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. If we who are seated here were, were, were at that point in time in the first century when Jesus came, we would have done exactly the same thing most of the people did. There was nothing attractive in him, and our eyes are always attracted to what is attractive. We are always inclined to go to that which pleases our eyes. We have the propensity to be drawn to what makes our heart feel good. But Jesus is, he was despised. We esteemed him not. We, we hid as it were our face from him. We don't want to see him, especially at the point when he went to the cross. So, Jesus kept a distance from them, a healthy distance. In John chapter 4, Jesus used an analogy of an everyday figure, which was water. And he was teaching the woman at the well about the living water. The woman initially misunderstood what Jesus was saying and said, give me this water so that I don't have to come here and fetch water again. But eventually, she got it. But the Jewish leaders over and over and over and over again refuse to understand Jesus' message about the kingdom, Jesus' message about salvation. You know, sometimes you may miss an important truth, isn't it? One time, one time, two times, three times. Sometimes you miss it when you're studying the word of God. 
and later when you come to the word of God at a different time on the same text, you think, how did I miss this? This is so applicable to me. This presents Jesus so well. This explains the situation so clearly. Sometimes you may miss it, but you can't miss it all the time if you're a believer. But the Jews seem to miss it all the time because they ask in verse 42, how is it then he says, this man from Nazareth, I have come down from heaven. And what did Jesus use? Jesus used a figure, a common figure, bread, to talk about himself. It was nothing out of the ordinary. As I said last Sunday, there are over a hundred varieties of bread, a word that is synonymous with food. But they refused to understand it. So Jesus therefore answered and said to them in verse 43, don't mama among yourselves. I know what you're doing. Don't mama among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him, who sent me, draws him. Those are, those are very strong words that Jesus speaks. The Gospel of John is one of those Gospels which you can read over and over and over and over again. And the Holy Spirit illuminates spiritual truth over and over and over again. It is compacted with the truth about Jesus as God, the truth about salvation, the truth about the goodness and the power and the majesty of God. So Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that, that, that must have offended the Jewish leaders. No wonder they murmured, no wonder they complained. It must have offended them just like it offends people today because we are at the very best synergistic. It's who we are as human beings. We always want to be in control. And if I'm not in control, then it's me partnering with you. But in this case, Jesus says, no one. That's a very strong message for him to declare. We always want to be active and not passive, such that every decision, such that every choice is mine. It is me who decided, it is I who made the choice. So Jesus says in conversion, it is God. It is not me. In fact, the word, the verb that is used there, draw, in verse 44, is a very strong usage of that word. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him to me. Draw, for example, in James chapter 2 and verse 16, has the idea of being hauled to court, of being dragged to court. In John chapter 21, verse 6, and even verse 11, it carries the idea of dragging a net, such as they dragged a net when, Jesus, when Peter, said to the other, Peter said to himself, mm, the master is not coming back, I am going fishing. And Jesus provided a great catch of fish. So it carries that idea of dragging a net. It's a strong verb. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 30, it takes the idea of being drawn out of the temple. When people didn't want to hear from Paul, and they wanted to kill him, and they beat him, and they stoned him, he was drawn out of the temple. So it's a very strong usage um, that Jesus states here. Drag, draw, haul. So I wondered, and I thought someone else also may wonder, someone may wonder and ask, does God then drag us to salvation, kicking and screaming? Does he drag and haul an individual to be converted? 
And I thought maybe someone may say, yes, I feel like that is what he did for me, that he dragged and, and, and he, he, he hauled me, kicking and screaming. There's a song that sometimes we sing. It is written by a man called Matt Maha. And it is sung by Chris Tomlin. It is called, uh, what is the name of the song? Your grace is enough. That's the song. So there is a line in that song that says, he wrestles with the sinner's heart. Should I sing it for you? Do you want to know why I am not in the choir? <laughs> he wrestles with the sinner's heart. Anytime I sing that song, I think, really? Really, does God wrestle with the sinner's heart? Uh, what, is the, what is the writer thinking? Sometimes writers have a thought that we don't, we don't get. They have very few words to compress in a song, and it's easy for us to misunderstand it. Was the writer thinking of the moment of conversion in the Christian life or all of Christian life that God wrestles with the sinner's heart? I, I believe the idea that he had came from Jacob wrestling in Genesis chapter 32. He wrestles with the sinner's heart, but, but at conversion, does he? The biblical description is that he changes our hearts. He, he transforms our mind. He renews us. So someone else may ask, what if someone refuses? Jesus has made a claim. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. What if the person refuses? And the simple answer is no one who the Father calls can actually refuse because God first does a work in their hearts so that the heart is changed and the heart is drawn to the Father. So no one can refuse. I'm trying to substantiate the claim of Jesus that he has made here. When one hears that internal call, that internal call to salvation. You know what I do when I come to preach every day, what every preacher does when he preaches, what you do when you're doing the work of evangelism, you're only giving the external call. You're preaching and declaring the word, you're explaining it, you're calling on men to believe and turn to Jesus and believe in Jesus and, 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 and trust in Jesus and hope in Jesus and accept Jesus. That is all you're doing. But it is until the Holy Spirit gives them that internal call and they hear your words and they say, I get it. I am a sinner. I am under the wrath of God. And some of you here can say, I had that call for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It was preached over and over and over again. It was explained by my mother, by my, by my brother, by my teacher, by my pastor, by so and so. What happened eventually? You had the inward call that called you to, to repent and to believe and to obey Jesus. And because God had already changed your heart, that's exactly what you did. So this drawing is never frustrated. It is always accomplished. This drawing is, it, it is not a partnership. Your will is not coerced. Your will is not manipulated. Your will is not forced. That's not how you believed in Jesus, is it? You are not forced, you are not coerced. You are not dragged, kicking and screaming. God changed your heart and you saw God drew your heart to him and you saw God called you to himself and you saw there is no else I want to be other than in the loving arms of my Lord. But if you are dragged, kicking and screaming, so be it. Thankfully you are here and you are saved and you have believed in Jesus. But that was not how most believed in Jesus. Someone may still say, but Martin, 
It was not him. It was me. I made Jesus Lord and Savior. To which I say, mm, not really. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 we read, when Peter was preaching, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I don't make him Lord. I don't make him Christ. God has already done that and accomplished it. Someone else may say, no, it is me who found him. It was me who confessed him. And then we turn then to the account in Matthew chapter 16, which we will come to in a few weeks from now, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter responded, you are Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Therefore, what Jesus, what Jesus is saying is very consistent with the scriptures. Oh, yeah, someone else may say, I chose him. It was I who chose him. It was I who decided. Then you go to John chapter 15 and verse 16, for example, that tells you, you did not choose me, Jesus told his disciples. It was not you who chose me. It was actually I who chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. So then someone else may ask, what then is my part? Your part is believing. My part is believing and is repenting, is obeying. Once Jesus is revealed to you by the Spirit, turning to him in repentance, in faith, in obedience. And that is not just a one-time thing. That is a lifelong commitment. We will always be repenting and trusting and obeying. And the ultimate result of that is, at the end of verse 44, Jesus says, as a result of all of this, I will raise him up at the last day. That clause, we find it four times, just between verse 22 and verse 59. Resurrection to eternal life. That was God. That is what Jesus has promised to you who has believed in him. You who the Father has called. Then Jesus goes on to say in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Now this is quoted from all manner of prophets, really. But specifically, it is quoted from Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54 speaks about God's everlasting love for his people. God's eternal love for his people. If you are God, and the Israelites did what they did day in, day out in the wilderness, what would you have done? You would have banished them and thrown them out and why am I bothering with you? But God's everlasting love for his people is spoken of there in Isaiah 54. And that's where Jesus quotes. And now I know, today, most people use this verse in relation to children, to their children in one way or the other. That your children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Sometimes you find it on a school motto. Our mission as a school is this, that we shall teach your children in the way of the Lord. So Jesus rightly applies it. Jesus rightly applies it. To quote John chapter 1 and verse 13, Jesus applies it to all God's children who are born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Those children shall obey and trust Jesus. They shall hear Christ, they shall learn from him, and they shall go to the Father through Jesus.
So God is never frustrated or disappointed. No. We shall hear Christ and go to the Father through him. And, and this is not through in, in, a, in a mystical, mysterious, private kind of way, but in a relationship by faith. And Jesus, so that they are not confused with what he's saying, tells them in verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father. No one has done that. No one has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. God is spirit. We saw that in John chapter 4 and verse 24. No one except Jesus has seen his essence. But Jesus knows the will of the Father. Jesus knows the desire of the Father. Jesus knows the heart of the Father. Only he has seen him. Most assuredly, I say to you, most assuredly, truly, truly, the version that was read before us said, very truly, I say to you. This usually comes before Jesus says something very important. I don't know how your parents used to grab your attention when they wanted to tell you something important. But my, my mother used to use the word, my, 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 my name, my middle name, which is really the name of my grandfather. And when he called me with that name, I knew that I had to turn to my mother and listen to what she is saying. The name that she chose for me was Martin. I asked him why. He said, because of Martin Luther. But the second name that he chose was the name of my grandfather. So whenever he would say, Moshoki, I have to listen. When Jesus says, most assuredly, truly, truly, when Jesus says, very truly, I say to you, he's about to say something profoundly important. You need to listen to this. You need to pay attention. You must take heed to what he says. Your life depends on it. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That is the most important thing that Jesus wants you to hear today. He who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, lest you can't hear it. Can you hear me clearly? Has the ceiling helped? Okay. Should we close those windows and doors? Will that help? I don't know. But I hope the people at the back can hear me well so that I'm not preaching to the choir. No offense, Moaka and Jill. It's just, you know, a figure of expression. Okay. So Jesus says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now you may ask, someone may ask, really? Yes. Because, Jesus says in verse 48, because I am the bread of life. It is on that basis that the person who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. We saw that last Sunday that I and I alone. That is the Father's plan. We sang a song and said, though I may not understand all the plans that you have, I will trust in you. My life is in your hands. This is the Father's plan, that Jesus is the bread of life and he alone. This is the Father's will. This is the way of God. This is God's kindness to you. This is God's provision for you, that he, Jesus, becomes your bread of life. So I ask, listen, do you want a purposeful life? So many books have been written about life with a purpose. 
So many questions have been asked about what is the purpose of my life? Do you want a purposeful life? Do you want a meaningful life? A full life? A fulfilled life? Do you want not only that, but an eternal, purposeful, meaningful, full, fulfilled life? If your answer is yes, that life is only found in Jesus and in nobody else. Only in Jesus. He's the only one who can satisfy you with finality, with certainty, and with the splendor of eternal life. You know, people are searching to fill their lives with all manner of things, when really all you need is to fill your life with Jesus, the bread of life. Furthermore, Jesus says in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness, and they died. If you would like to learn more about the manna, please listen to Daryl's sermon, which is on our website, on our YouTube channel, and it's also, if you did not know, on our podcast. So if you just want to listen and don't want to watch, we have a podcast, and this has been running for quite some time now. The, it has been there this year and some part of last year. Some of you know about it, of course. It is, titled, it is called the One Life Church Uganda Podcast. You can get it on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. You can go there and listen to Daryl's sermon about the bread from heaven. So the people demanded a sign from Jesus. We saw that in verse 30 to verse 31. Specifically, they wanted Jesus to feed them with bread, as in Moses' time. Jesus had already done that. He'd already fed them with bread in the wilderness, but it was not enough. They think Moses had done it for 40 years to all Israelites. Jesus, you've only done it once to 20,000 at best. Furthermore, they think the bread that had fallen from heaven was manna, but the bread that Jesus gave did not really fall down from heaven. Now, when we think about the manna, which is detailed in Exodus, chapter 16, and verse, verse 1 to verse 35. Exodus chapter 16, for example, verse 14 tells us, concerning the manna, when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Then in verse 31, the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. That was the manna. The manna was provided by God, sent from heaven. And that means it was provided in an extraordinary way. The manna was necessary for life. It was pure and white. It was sweeter than honey. The manna was preserved as a testimony. The manna was taken up daily and it was freely given. What was it? They asked themselves. What is it? They wished not what it was. They wondered what it was. Now we know what it was, don't we? It was Jesus. It is Jesus. It was a picture and a symbol of Jesus, not the reality. It could sustain the body, but it could not give life. How do we know that it could not give life? Because your fathers ate it in the wilderness, 
and they are dead. Those who ate it died. It did not preserve their natural life. It did not give them eternal life. Those who ate it but did not believe God physically died and will be eternally separated from God. That's just a reality. Not everyone who was in the wilderness was saved. But those who believed God and ate it physically died. We know that. None of them are existing today. But though they physically died, they are with God forever. Because they ate the bread having believed in God who had provided for that bread. And so with all its goodness and deliciousness and physical health benefits, the manna was just an image. Eating the manna in the wilderness did not equal to salvation. Did you ever hear someone say, going to church on Sunday does not make you a Christian? And then they gave an example from life and they said, the same way if you go to a garage, that doesn't make you a car. Eating the manna in the desert did not equal to salvation. But praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth upon all men. Praise and honor and majesty be to our God. Why am I saying that? Because of verse 50. This is the bread which came down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus says, I... I'm the living bread. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will not die. What is the greatest fear of man? What is the greatest fear of human beings? If you think about it critically, it will narrow down to death. Someone will say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not afraid really of dying. But first of all, if you see death coming through the door, you will run to the other side. Someone may also say, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm only afraid of how I will die. Or if I could only choose my death. If I could only die in my sleep or when I'm 95 years old and fulfilled and have this number of great, great grandchildren. The greatest enemy of man is death. We know that. But Jesus says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus used to make some of these very big claims, magnificent claims, humongous claims. Really, I eat of your bread and I live forever. So let's think about it. When we eat physical bread, we survive physically, isn't it? When we eat spiritual food, Jesus says we survive spiritually. So let me submit to you today that you need both. You need to eat so that you can survive physically. And you also need to eat of the bread of life so that you can thrive spiritually and so that you can inherit eternal life. That is the only way. They are grumbling about him being the, the bread of life does not change that fact. He repeats that same truth to their ears. But what? What does Jesus mean right here when he says that he is the bread of life? When he says that by eating of it, one will not die. What does Jesus mean by living forever? What does he mean by that? Um, historically, traditionally, death 
from a Christian perspective, has been divided into three. The physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death is separation of the body from the soul or the spirit. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that when we die, the body goes back to where it came from, from the soil, and the spirit or soul, those two words are used interchangeably, another dichotomy in the Bible, the spirit or the soul goes back to the one who gave it. It's physical death. It's, you are with someone today, you are not with them the next moment. There's also spiritual death. This is separation from, of the creator from the created. That yes, you are breathing, you are living, but in your spirit, in your spiritual life, you are dead. And then there is eternal death. Eternal death is, is permanent separation from God. Once one day we die, or Jesus comes for us, and this person has not believed in Jesus, so Jesus did not come for them. They are eternally separated from God. This is how believers have understood death. There is that permanent separation that the person goes to hell and suffers the consequences of their sin, and Jesus is in heaven. We will look at that more closely when we come to the story, an actual story, of the rich man and Lazarus. What does Jesus mean by eating of this bread and not dying? What does he mean by living forever? Secondly, we have to have the idea, which is in verse 58, the idea of eternal life, living in the present time as well as in the future time. So we live today in view of eternity. We live our lives now in view of the life that is to come. So it is a, a now but not yet idea, just as we saw when we looked at the kingdom. The kingdom has already come because Jesus came to usher the kingdom, but the kingdom is not yet, it's not yet fully realized. And that may not be the conviction of anybody, everybody, some still believe the kingdom has entirely not come, but I am convinced that the kingdom came because Jesus said it as we looked at it in past time. So there is this idea of now but not yet. Those who have believed in Jesus have eternal life. You are heirs of the kingdom of God. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You are a child of the king, an adopted son of God. You are a co-heir with Jesus. This is the reality. Now as you're seated here today, as you listen to me, this is the reality. But not yet. You have not appropriated in full all of what this means. There is still a battle with sin, a battle with your sinful nature, a battle with Satan. We have not fully taken possession of that life, although by faith in Jesus we have acquired it. But one day we will, when Jesus takes us home. What do we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12? That now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I'm also known. It may not be yet, yet we have it. But more closely on our text, look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, for example in verse 47. Jesus says, truly, truly I say to you, he who has believed in me, what is the word that follows? Has eternal life. Now they have it. Look at verse 51. 
I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So then not now, it is to come. And that same verse, and the bread also which I will give, I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Of course, that was accomplished at his crucifixion. Look at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Right now, you have it, eternal life, if you have believed in Jesus. It is now going into the future. But then, the plot thickens. The words of Jesus become even more weighty. Jesus changes gear. Have you ever driven a manual car? And all those joys of changing the clutch and going from gear one to gear two to three to four. There is, if you drive an automatic car like me, you miss out everything that it means to drive a vehicle. I have to learn to change the gears and to balance them in the hills of Kampala and, and, to, and, and for them to torture your mind in the potholes that have been exhibited this week on social media. Jesus changes gear. And he says at the end of verse 1 and verse 52 that the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. You want to know the bread that I'm talking about? The bread that I shall give is my flesh. And immediately, the Jewish leaders started quarreling among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Listen, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that the life, that the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world? What does he mean? Come back next Sunday when it is not raining, and then we can look at that and hopefully finish the chapter. Father, we thank you for these words of life, words that some of us have already heard about in time past, so that it is nothing new, words that we have heard about and sometimes we become so familiar with them, yet they are wonderful and beautiful words of life. You are the bread of life. You are the one who gave himself. You are the one who laid down your life. You are the one who died so that those who believe in you would attain eternal life. And even if they die, they will be resurrected unto eternal life. You tell us that no one can come to you unless the Father draws that person to you. Father, I pray that through the preaching of this word today, through looking at the life of Christ, that you would draw all those who hear it to yourself, that you would save them, that you would change their hearts so that they would see your beauty and your majesty and of your love and they would turn to you in repentance and obedience and faith like many of us did. You tell us about this truth 
in John chapter 6. And as we continue investigating it, we pray that you would give us understanding. In Jesus' name, we pray. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.